I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing culture and life, past, present, and future. Special disclaimer for today's episode. This episode talks about the relationship between sailing and sex. It is not explicit, but you may want to ask the kids to leave the room. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times. A published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey, Todd, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. So why don't you tell the audience what today's episode is about? Today's episode is titled uh, Sex and Sailing. Um, the log line must be, one must be counted as very fortunate to experience great sex on a boat. And really, it's a story about sort of awakening and becoming a better partner, a better sex partner, a better mate, a better teammate, um, and some of the things that you go through. But it also sort of illustrates uh, the whole physical nature of being on a boat and sailing and you know, being in a beautiful cove in the Caribbean, um, you know, swimming in 80 degree water with the fishes and da, 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 da. And, and how sexy that whole atmosphere is, but there's more psychological and there's some scientific and there's a couple of really kind of interesting things that go on with that. And this is a story about my sort of experiencing that. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Sex and sailing. They're a unique combination that results in a unique experience. And a kind of experience that I think many, many people who don't sail really don't get but if you're sailing and you're fortunate enough to experience great sex on a boat then you must be counted as one of the lucky ones but before we get into the tawdry details I want to start out by saying that as a man, growing up in a very misogynistic society, and the yacht world, the boat world, is also a very misogynistic, male-dominated culture. But I'm happy to see today many, many more women helming their boats, uh, learning to sail, crossing oceans, and racing. Um, I think in my lifetime, it's, it's remarkable to see this happening. Where the women on a boat are not just objects to be used or to clean heads 
or to cook or to be on sexual demand or whatever. That kind of old school, thoughtless, moronic, Neanderthal dragging knuckle way, I think is a is something in the past. Is is moving into the past slowly, but the evolution is coming really in two ways. Women are much more uh, strong. Uh, they're more deliberate. Um, they are more interested in their in staking out their territory, and they're not embarrassed to do so. Men, on the other hand, um, are probably slower to develop as we view sex in a kind of act kind of way, just as the act or acts or whatever, but we lack in terms of emotional sensitivity and connection um, what really makes great sex. And women seem to be more sensitive to that kind of thing, although quite frankly, I've been with women that were not sensitive to that at all. But in any case, this is just a preface for the argument in today's podcast of why sailing leads to better sex and sex on a boat in a beautiful environment is the most rewarding and outstanding sex you could have in your life. It's transformative. So back in the day, I, I gently pushed the throttle on the port bridge. There were two stations, um, port and starboard, and then, of course, in the pilot house itself. And I was out on the bridge, which is an extension. Um, the mates had cast off the mooring lines, and I was watching them hop on board. I was piloting a 150-foot three-deck party boat called Party One. We moved slowly astern under the shadow of the United Nations um, International School. The, a helicopter had landed on the pad next to the dock. Um, it's right there off of the Riverside Drive. It was an unusual place in New York City where you had the helicopter pad and ships and the school and the UN. And We also had a helicopter on the upper deck, but it was bolted to the deck and its flying days were long over. I could hear the helicopter blades whisk through the stifling humidity on the East River. The sun cast that discernible angle of fall light. Fall was about hues, dazzling preparation to the gloom of winter. As the stern hit the current and, and, and pushed the, started to push the stern down river, I applied the bow thrusters to push the bow straight against the race and throttle the port engine to keep the old girls straight and clear of the little breakwater. I turned the bow upstream with some difficulty, shuddering 
and headed upriver towards our final destination, which was the Arthur Ashe Tennis Center. I had 130 persons on board, all of somewhat famous, and 26 crew members. This was to be my last trip of the season. A part-time job, I skippered this vessel for tours a couple of times a week out to the Statue of Liberty and up the North River, the Hudson, to sightsee the west side of Manhattan. All in all, it was a simple job, good pay, a free meal from the caterer, which was uh, always tasty. And as we moved up through Hell's Gate, we made about two knots over ground against the race and tide. Party one was grossly underpowered. She strained to make her way past Roosevelt Island. Our guests were none the wiser. Drinks flowed, the DJ played, and soon within the next hour, hour and a half, we would dock at the tennis center. We would then wait for the matches to be over and then take everyone home and it would turn out to be fairly late night for us. I was alone in the pilot house with my thoughts. I was being very introspective. I had built a life for myself in New York and I was a almost successful playwright. That part of my literary claim teetered on a couple of shows that were well-received, but didn't make money, and the nagging thought that I really had no voice, at least not a distinctive voice. I didn't have an important voice, and I was making all the wrong choices from a pool of bad choices then throwing myself into them to make them right, knowing all the while I was making a mistake. This was also reflected in my personal life, which seemed no better than the constant need for intimacy, the cruel letdown that sex and intimacy were two separate acts that rarely supported one another, until you figure it out. And that's what this podcast is about, figuring it out. Most people never figure it out. Sometimes in the perfect world they might, but that learned lesson was a lifetime away from my being at that time. Chugging up the East River was a simple metaphor for where I was emotionally. Working hard but only covering two knots over ground. A week before, I drove a U-Haul truck with all my girlfriends, now ex-girlfriends' belongings, to Washington, D.C. She was the first girlfriend after the divorce of that marriage that should have never happened. You know which one that is. We had some good times. We met New York, traveled together to Utah, settled in San Diego, I went sailing around the Pacific, and she stayed home and went to school. When I came home after being gone for two months, she had moved to New York City. She left some of her stuff in the San Diego apartment, which I had to bring to her when I was ready. The timing worked out. I arrived in New York with her stuff, 
The sex was good when we got back together. She always had different ideas about it, being a, a Mormon and then giving up on being a Mormon and very conservative for some reason. And then suddenly like she was this crazy maniac um, and hard to characterize how unique and unusual that was for me at the time. Cause my experience um, with the ladies was very limited to say the least. And I wasn't um, obsessed by that. I, I later became obsessed, but I wasn't obsessed by sex in that regard. She worked at a, a feminist bookstore part-time and brought home instruction manuals, which we would explore. And, um, you know, how to have better sex, exploring your partner's body, how to spice up the bedroom. Um, I was open to all the experimenting, but as our lives went on with a smug and satisfying confidence, I learned that the secret to a successful relationship is to be honest. I wasn't. I had something nagging in the back of my mind, not, not deceitfulness in that regard, but I wanted something else, something more, something different, something, something more than what I had seen from my parents, which was a, a tedious detente. Um, it's hardly an exemplary example, nor were the rosy television versions I grew up with. Uh, no, I wanted something, but I just didn't know what it was. Um, even though we had unleashed this sort of experimental idea and it was good, um, there was like super limits and it, my mind was somewhere else. Uh, my desires were somewhere else, but I didn't know how to fulfill those desires. So this was my last trip and she was gone. I was back in New York and I was getting ready. I docked the boat right in the shadows of the tennis center. The guests disembarked, the crew cleaned up and prepared for a return trip. A full dinner would be served with linen, china, flower arrangements, and a DJ. I stood on the dock and stretched my legs. I just drove the boat and just made sure everybody was safe. That was my job. My generation suffers from this debilitating need to identify one's being with their job. I had two jobs. Thus, you can say I had a split identification problem. What was I? A writer or a marine professional? A marriage partner or a satyr? If you ever had the side thought that told you you were not asking the right questions because you didn't know what questions to ask, welcome to the state of my being at that time. I knew there had to be questions. I just didn't. I didn't know how to ask them. You know, a lot of people have answers. They love their answers. But intelligent people, people that seem to grow, have questions. Now, I was brought up in an environment where it was considered rude to ask questions. 
I specialized in being rude. When I returned to the pilot house, I found a girl who I recognized from the movies sitting in my pilot's chair. She was very nice. She got up right away and apologized for being in what she construed as my chair. It was the public captain chair. I told her to stay seated. She liked being in the pilot house. It's a sense of control with all the buttons and dials and throttles and radar and everything. It's command center. She told me that she had changed her mind about going to watch tennis. She wasn't interested in tennis, and she was just there to meet people. She wasn't feeling well, and she thought it would be better off just to stay on the boat and let the time pass. Her date, quote-unquote, um, was her agent. Um, they weren't actually dating. He was just, that's who she was with. And he was very intent on making connections, so he left her, and he went into the tennis center. She, she told me all about the work and um, how she does all this networking, how getting a role in a movie was and, and is to a degree about who you know, who you screw, who you don't screw for the job. That's why she said things are slow for me because I don't screw for the job. One thing you have to know is, is that when you're running a charter boat, no matter where you are or what you're are doing, there is a distance that must be maintained. It's a part of a professional code, so to speak. I don't know where it is written or who wrote it, but with a movie star in my pilot house, I was breaking the rules. She knew it. I knew it. Neither one of us cared, but everyone else did. While phone calls furiously bounced back and forth between the agent, the owner of the charter company, some of the guests, and even reporters, my movie star and I talked about our lives, past and present. It was innocent. It was honest. It was safe. Profoundly intimate. In such a short time as to have taken, in, taken both of us aback. We talked about repeating the same mistakes in judgment. Why did we have a great need for someone in our lives? Sex was, was not far from our minds. Why we, we got into analyzing what we were feeling. And it wasn't until my first mate entered with a worried look on his face. Uh, we would have thrown our bodies together and had the most tawdry and exciting sex in the captain's chair possible. I knew it. She knew it. Feeling excited in that way, well, that was the boat. Even an old, underpowered tour boat packed with people and a fake helicopter on the upper deck, it was the boat. My movie star was taken off the boat by her agent. They were going to drive back to Manhattan to avoid what I was told were appearances. I was admonished for creating a situation, but she gave me her number. She kissed me in front of everyone and walked down the gangway. I never called her. Eventually, I lost the number. I saw an opportunity. I felt a connection. 
And for the first time in my life, I didn't throw myself headlong into a situation that would, in retrospect, would have been a bad decision. Because I was not in a position emotionally to to develop a relationship. I didn't think I would ever be. I was just going to be a captain and put the torturous, aspirational stuff in a box somewhere in my soul and go on with living. The next night, I joined a crew of a 42-foot Pearson. We were leaving... um, the West Side Marina in Manhattan uh, for the Virgin Islands. Four guys traveling about 1,200 miles. My process of coming to terms with my confused psyche would have to wait. It didn't wait. In fact, it became more intense. I was going to enjoy life within limits of the discipline that I imposed and work hard. I was going to let my spirit roam and see where it takes me. Free. No encumbrances. No girlfriends. No nothing. Just me, the captain, and the world. The ocean has a way of sorting out your mind and your feelings. I needed to embrace the sailor in me. I wasn't going to be another playwright or screenwriter waiting tables. I was trapped as a playwright and screenwriter driving tugboats and tour boats. To be honest, I needed to be one or the other. Somewhere between New York and Bermuda, while pounding against a nasty storm front, I finally, I finally approached what they call in yoga the, the fifth state of mind, Narudaha. I was totally focused and relaxed. A 50-knot wind gusts were noted. Choppy 15-foot waves with breakers that pounded the hull like a telephone pole were dutifully registered. There was no danger of dying or sinking, just a sloppy night. I'd been through nights like this one before. The other crew members were sort of characterizations of what my mind had been. States of nervous thoughts. Is this going to break? Are we going to sink? I can't sleep. What's this? Did I leave a will? Lazy, nearly dull, sleepy minds. A couple of the guys were partially focused on what was going on, but the The nervous thoughts and the lazy minds didn't help their focus. What I didn't understand was my decision to simply be, quote-unquote, helped me overcome my stress and anxiety levels. It helped me pass through these states of my mind until... I was never really stressed on the wind and the seas. And in fact, I always was calmer. I had that interior calm. When everyone else's stress was off the limits, I'd been told this by doctors who study these things. They have very high levels of uh, GAMBA. 
and dopamine and serotonin and endorphins. So when I'm faced with dangerous situations, I stay very calm. Even though, you know, intellectually, it's like, well, what the hell? I mean, a couple of tours in Vietnam, countless miles of sailing in all types of conditions, and the propensity for finding extreme situations all contributed to the development of these levels of calm because those chemicals that are secreted in that are... um, it has to do with repeating it and free, more frequency. And the more frequency is the calmer you get. That's why you see captains who've been around a long time. When they're on a boat, they're like so calm. It's like, yeah, all right, cool. You know, it could be on fire, the boat on fire and half sinking, and they're still cool. But just through lifetime of experience and those experiences creating, your body creating those chemicals during those experiences creates this kind of calm clear-headedness and deep, deep focus into what's going on. And I attribute that development and that concept to why physically sex is great on a sailing boat. Yet the real essence of the lesson didn't sink in until I called my ex-girlfriend from Bermuda. She'd asked me to call. She said, I know you're going, but just... It was something we had done before when I was in the Pacific. And to tell her, I told her that, I said, look, breaking up was the right thing to do, which she was sort of upset by. And that she wasn't made for my life. She felt the sting of that comment. She wasn't made for my life. I felt my world open and narrow at the same time. I was a sailor. And if I wanted a partner, if I needed a partner, it would have to be somebody willing to be a sailing partner and all that entailed that. My compromise. As an artist, in this case, I'm a writer practicing. Your art is about, is essentially stealing time. Okay? Because it just takes time to write. It takes time to think. It takes time to write. And creativity is destroyed um, through distraction. Many of my friends who are writers and poets get jobs teaching. So they're able to kind of make this space that they could work in. Some others have found work that was unrelated and found that their writing suffered very much. Um, I believe, and this is a strong belief, That your life informs your writing, and the depth and substance of your writing is found in what you do. Hemingway is the example. Journalist, sportsman, writer, his stories were his life. That was what I wanted to do. That was the way I wanted to live my life without compromise, in the moment, no nervous, no monkey brain churning over nonsense, like... Where is the next buck coming from? Or should I buy a house? And do I need life insurance? What was my credit rating? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In order to live life, I want it. And I had to focus on just simply being. I had to find a way to get out of my way. And quite frankly, sex was in my way. Because I had become obsessed by it. And the boat kind of 
made me think about it more and more and more. The ocean, you know, the sound of the water running along the hull, the hum of the rigging, the occasional flutter of the sail luff, the creak of the block, the sounds associated with the vessel in concert with the ocean. It's all sexy stuff. So another aspect of this is the crew I was on with the Pearson, the four men I was with, I was the fifth, there was a hierarchy established. And on those things, you know, this is how crew works. Experience and knowledge being the key factors. I was younger than all the others, but I had the most experience. My role was really as the first mate. The owner, Ira, was a retired physicist from IBM. He took his uh, boat down to the Virgin Islands to charter every year uh, for the past five years. So he had, you know, experience. The two other guys were racers, not really accustomed to the sea. Um, they fought every movement of the boat, and they spent actually most of the time seasick and useless. And the last crew member was Ira's nephew. Um, he had never been on a boat before joining the crew. Ira was counting on me, and um, I had developed my authority by virtue of my perceived experience and not by my own self-declaration. Now I'm t saying this because men have a tendency to be competitive, braggadocious, and quite obnoxious about their position on a boat. The male ego, and ladies, I'm sure you'll attest to this, the male ego is an unpleasant mate on a long voyage. I was very aware of this darkness. I had to let it go. I had to let it get, it, I had let it get out of hand on prior voyages in the Pacific. Insecurity creates bad decisions because the ego needs to be right. Ego is the hero of your story without regard for others. It is a doomsday recipe for a voyage. And to be quite honest, and the women listening to this podcast will understand that men are really slow in learning this. It's about letting go. It's about the fear of letting go, I should say more specifically. I know, because I was for a long time a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. Learning this lesson made sex on the boat better. I had learned enough at this point to be cool, to be supportive, and anticipate the needs of the boat. I wasn't really that highly developed, but in the next months... I was forced to kind of develop faster. Any of you wonderful listeners who have been through some kind of transitive experience where a whole new world has opened up for you before will understand what I'm talking about here and what I'm kind of circling. Okay. In order to have that wonderful thing called sex become magnified 
and life-changing, you have to start with yourself. The boat life and experience will only enhance that experience. Because I've known people get on the boat, yeah, have sex. I mean, I did charters for years. I have seen everything. So where I learned that was on a Robert Perry designed CT-54. And I started my own charter business. And um, I would own and sail that boat around the world and make numerous crossings for the next 20 years. And during that time, I had many mates. Sometimes they, they were sexual partners and sometimes not. At first, I repeated the same behavior as I did before with my ex-girlfriend. So let me put it into some other terms. Is making a guys will make a love story where there isn't one to be. I had first started getting my boat ready for charter and I was just working my butt off and getting all the varnish right and it, it was a lot of work and um you know preparing everything putting new pumps in uh, new lines a couple of new sails were built um you know cushions I bought some cushions I had the cushions covered and I was spending a ton of money getting the boat ready and the one thing I needed in the charter business was uh, a chef or a cook. Um, I could cook. I'm a pretty good cook, actually. I'm, yeah, damn good cook. And uh, but I needed somebody because it was the 54 was good as a couple, couple boat. You know, a couple running the boat. It's a lot of work for a couple, but it actually um, it was it was good, it was good for for charter. It fit a kind of cool niche that, uh, or niche, as they would say. And we were pretty excited about it. So I ran into this girl named Laura, who was uh, from North Dakota. And she was down on vacation, and we had talked. She was very pretty, very exciting. Just, I thought, okay, she's the right person. That whole Midwest kind of welcome to my house uh, super nice, uh, athletic, um, talented. She played drums really well. Um, she could sing. She did a lot of things. She, she was she was fun. And I offered to fly her down from North Dakota. She she was on vacation in the uh, Charlotte Amalie in the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. And uh, we met at a bar, which I don't think is there anymore. And uh, we, you know, we kind of chatted up and I said, hey, how would you like a job? Just like that. How would you like a job? So she flew back um, after her vacation and um, uh, we talked on the phone a couple of times. And then finally I, she was convinced um, that she would come and uh, help me with the charter business. And we were getting ready for the, the charter boat show in St. Thomas. And it was a pretty exciting time for me um, because I was sort of organizing all this stuff and was being the captain in me. But my mind and my <clears throat> other thinking head was focused on this 
idyllic, beautiful love story that I was building up in my mind. So she finally came down. We hooked up. It didn't take us long to become sexual partners. But we really didn't grow close to each other. And literally, I was creating a love story in my mind with this woman. We were having great sex. Don't get me wrong. Sex was great. We worked really hard. We were really successful. We had tons of charters. Everybody loved her. And by the way, that was the one thing I always I learned right off from the charter business. People are not chartering the boat for me. They're usually chartering the boat for whoever is the chef or the the young woman on the boat who is charming and pretty and all the rest. That's who they're chartering the boat. For me, it's just like, you know, he's that cantankerous captain. Storyteller. Quite honestly, I learned how to tell stories really off. Because every night I had to tell a story. You know, an entertainment story. Um, people would ask you questions and, you know, the answer would be a story. I still do the same thing. Much to the detriment of my friends who have heard almost all of them. So I went through this whole process with Laura and we kept going and going and going and you know, I made a, made a couple of crossings, uh, and she went to Europe. She toured Europe. Um, and the bottom line is we made a lot of really great friends, and I had placed too much of an emphasis on the love relationship and had tried, as in her words, too hard to make something happen. And I think most men are guilty of this at one point in their lives or not. So that's kind of why it just didn't work. I was in Greece with Laura. We had done a season in Greece and Turkey. We had a wonderful time. Um, Sex was good. Companionship was good. Partnership was good. But I wasn't getting something out of it because she wasn't she just wasn't interested in that sort of thing I failed to realize that I was trying too hard had I not tried hard it probably would have worked out I put her in a taxi cab uh, in Greece and um, that's the last I've ever seen of her so that is the love story that wasn't to be one Another aspect of stepping into getting that fantastic stuff going or realizing that fantastic experience of movement, of the chemicals in your body taking over, your desire, your, your requirements of lovemaking, your happiness, your exaltations really came with Steffi. Now, I had been through a number of mates beforehand, some of which I didn't have sex or whatever. They were just, you know, on the boat 
done seasons and seasons with people and this, that, and thing. And then Steffi came. Steffi was not interested in romance whatsoever. And at the time, I kind of gave up on the concept. We had fun sex. Yeah, we had, we just, yeah. It was like, we'd start playing cards. Next thing you know, we'd be going at it. We'd go to... uh a uh, anchorage, which is completely private, nobody around. Water's eighty-six degrees. Steffi was French. Um, very rarely, you know, she loved to be out in the nude. Um, the whole tactile, beautiful, free, forget about the rules kind of feeling about life was not new to me. I had become used to it. I had en- enjoyed it. It it still kept the tactile super energy, and, but I had just become, not nonchalant, I had just become accepting of being in that, that place. Now, I know there's a lot of people who cruise and live on boats that listen to this podcast, and you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's especially wonderful when you and your partner understand each other. And one of the great things about Steffi was, Steffi always made sure I knew what was going on with the relationship. And I knew we were having fun. We were doing business. We were sailing around. But one of the key things that I found about developing a relationship into something spectacular was the friendship aspect. The friendship aspect, the teamwork aspect. And this is the other element that kind of makes it even better. She was a good sailor. She could, she could run the boat herself. Didn't need me. I I taught her how to sail off the anchor. She could handle it. She was great at it. She was gorgeous too. Just to add that for the guys. And we would just we would just sail around and and, and we do charters and stuff and she was very charming. Her, her English was very good and she was very, you know, excited to see people and and listen to people and she was just just an absolute darling to be on the boat and she could cook like you cannot believe the whole oral idea of eating food and drinking wine and that whole sexy environment that's going on with the with the beautiful water and the the moonlit uh, beaches and and you know looking at the reefs you know under the moonlight sparkling this is this this is perfect this is where we stayed but even that came to an end because she did not want to be emotionally connected to somebody who was simply wandering around the world. 
which is the sailor person in me, who is very happy to wander around the world. But I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice between wandering around the world, having this void of intimacy, I mean true intimacy, and going forward and learning something and growing. So I shifted gears. I eventually changed boats, um, several boats, eventually chartered all over the place. In years past, I had other mates, other partners. These things all changed. But I realized that to have great sex on the boat is you've got so much going for you, which is the boat itself is, is making you feel like you want to have sex. The environment, the ocean, the air is all making you change. It's like being in yoga for 24 hours. Your mental state becomes different. Your philosophy changes because you're on a boat. There's no past. There's no future. It's just what's happening on a boat. You're eating fine food and drinking wine. It tastes fantastic. The same thing on land is mediocre. So your senses are tingling. So when you go and have sex, you're either going to have sex and it'll be great. Don't get me wrong. Sex will be just great. But when you have sex with a teammate, with a friend, somebody who has their own natural authority and who recognizes yours and your ego is off in the closet somewhere, that way you have the best of all the worlds the best sex, and the best sailing. That was an interesting story of personal discovery, and I think that uh, I think that a lot of people can identify with the allure of the romance of sailing. It seems like there's a lot of literature and you know sordid romance novels and movies about the the body nature of sailing and boats and that whole world why do you think that is well i mean i think it goes to the very uh physical nature of sailing and it goes you know it goes back thousands of years um if if you look to yoga as an example as i, I point out you know that whole physical movement that you have plus the psychological aspect of, of sort of time and suspension and your body is moving and your body is reacting to that. The, the serenum, you know, the chemicals are working in your brain. 
you know, you, you begin to, to feel uh, excited and you, you feel different. You're in a different um, mental space, philosophical space. And then there's, you know, then there's the boats itself, which are, are really sexy. They're tactile, you know, walking on a, a beautiful uh, teak deck on, on barefoot. You can feel that. that. That's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And so there's, a, there's a, a lot of elements that are into that. The history of it is that it's always been sort of a misogynistic man's world, okay? Um, it was the men that went out there, not the women. It was the men that did this. Men were pirates, and men were ship captains and fighting captains during the age of sail. And it's men who race, and men who do this, and men who do that. When in fact, we all know that there's nothing special about men and boats, because women can handle boats just as easily. It doesn't take a great deal of strength, maybe in a couple of small things, but it's just, it, it's a misnomer. It's a place where men can be men, and there's that, that sort of misogynistic um, attitude and atmosphere, but it holds you back from actually experiencing something that's really fantastic, which is the boat itself, and the relationship with a woman on, uh, in a kind of uh, physical yoga-like experience. And that's what I was trying to get across as, as a sort of an awakening that one is very lucky to have, you know, to be with somebody that is just more than just physical, where your teammates and, and co-workers and friends and if you're lucky, lovers as well. Yeah. And I know, you know, off the top of my head, I can only think of a handful of, of famous female sailors other than, um, you know, like Anne Bonnie is like the most famous female pirate out there, right? Um, but there's not a lot. I mean, you, you, you see a couple, but it's not, you know, not all that common. Um, but I guess it's, it's really changing. Uh, yeah, for ancient times... Yeah, but there's, you know, uh, modern times, there's many more, um, there's many more female sailors that are going around the world. And, and we're going to do a piece in the future on, on female sailors. And in fact, uh, I'm going to be doing an interview with a, with a woman in a couple of weeks when she gets back in town that um, uh, it sailed around the world for seven years. And uh, be, she's a pretty interesting person. And so we're going to be doing that. So, but next week, we're going to do something a little bit different. Yes. Tell us what's coming next week. <laughs> I cannot wait to hear what's coming next week. <laughs> so I, I, I've actually had a number of requests. Um, uh, people love the stories that I tell. And I'm, I'm very grateful and very humbled by that. Um, it's not often a storyteller can reach such a big audience. And uh, it's very exciting. So somebody asked me about uh, stories and how I approach stories and, and you know, what, what comes to mind. Well, one of those things that comes to mind that I've been looking at is what I call dry ports. These are places that were ports. And for one reason or another, whether they, the river silted up and you can't get to the city where the port was, or which is the case of this next story, or it's just that the port is underwater, like, you know, the port of Alexandria in, in Egypt. 
the ancient port is actually underwater about um, about 45 meters from the shore where the shore is today. So it's the cycle of the ocean going up and down, um, global warming, etc., and all the rest of that. But I decided to do a little series uh, on another project um, on dry ports, ports that that were in, were very important, um, but are essentially landlocked. Um, and the first one is going to be um, Seville or Sevilla, as they say in Spain. Um, if there's any Game of Thrones um, watchers and fans out there, most of um, let me see, most of the 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 port scenes were shot in Seville um, at the old port because it had an old port where they built ships and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And there's a river that runs down into the Mediterranean, but the river has long been silted up. So it's just basically uh, has very little traffic. It can't be used as a, as a major traffic place. But Seville, on the other hand, was very, very famous for the mud it left. And the mud makes tiles. And those tiles, the people in Seville make is a mosaic tile and it's a very special kind of tile and uh, i heard a story true story um, that took place in uh, franco time um, in the early 20th century and it is about um, a young boy who is uh, you know makes mosaics and there's a whole history to it. So I decided to tell the story. It's not necessarily a sailing story, but it is a, a story from a sailing town. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.